0: Merry Christmas! (laughs) If you will turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, we're going to start here. We're going to take a tour through all of Scripture to look at who the Son of Man is. We'll be coming back to Mark 10, 42 again later too. But when I say Merry Christmas, I feel like sometimes I need to define the term lately. You know, it seems like so often, like last Friday when I was watching television, the news and the commercials told me that Christmas was about presents, about buying, about probably a lot of debt. But really, Christmas is not about those things. There there is this underlying current, this grace that's been given to us that we still remember that there's something about giving but we hear these distorted echoes because what that giving is truly about is what we've been given in Christ, the Son of Man. Christmas is about almighty, glorious God taking on human flesh, becoming a Son of Man, an ordinary Son of Man, but the extraordinary Son of Man. When He became the Son of Man, He spoke of Himself as such more often than any other name. He called himself Son of Man over 80 times in the Gospels. And that carried a deep and rich meaning. that was drawn from the Old Testament and that he added to himself. And really what the purpose of him coming to become human like us, to become a Son of Man, what the purpose of all of that was, was that he came to show us what humanity was truly supposed to be. Dependent humanity. They came to serve, to suffer, and ultimately to find a surprising splendor in the midst of his service, his suffering, and his dependency. Almighty God had the humility to lower himself and become a dependent man, dependent on the Father. So let's look at these two versions of, of humanity that will Read about in just a second, Mark 10, 42 through 45. There's two options. There's the one that we're all born with, the self-seeking option. The option of really doing everything for the me monster. It's all about me all the time. And that's how we're born. That's who we are today in so many ways. Uh, Even if Christ has come into our lives, we struggle with that me monster. But option number one of being that self-seeking humanity I want to illustrate by maybe a politician because we all feel like we can downgrade politicians a bit. So a politician, picture him standing in front of a crowd seeking election. And picture him uh, proclaiming to this crowd that he came and he just wants to sacrifice his private sector job. He wants to serve these people. But then he gets off of that platform, goes away from the crowds, gets into his limo rides off to his private jet, and he's thinking all the time, Wow, if I can get elected, I will have it made. Man, this will open up so many opportunities for me. I'll be able to have wealth, power, influence. This is going to be amazing. It's going to be about me and what I want. That's the self-seeking option. That's the option we're born into. However, there's another humanity. The other humanity I want to illustrate by a name that's pretty famous during Christmas time, named Saint Nicholas. However, this Saint Nicholas that I want to talk about was Saint Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. He was born in the third century into great wealth. And as he became a young man, he heard the story of Jesus speaking to another young man, a rich young man like himself. And Jesus told him to give away everything that he had sell it and give it to the poor. And St. Nicholas was inspired by this story. And he saw himself in that story. So he sold his wealth. And he spent his life giving away to the poor, to the oppressed, to the sick. But then St. Nicholas also did this one thing that has rung through the years. It's a story of him giving to three young daughters who had no money for a bridal dowry and therefore no prospect of ever getting married... And they would end up in destitution, in poverty, in shame, maybe being sold into slavery. And he wanted to help. So on three consecutive nights, he went and threw a bag of gold in through their window. The window was open, by the way. <laughs> and it landed in a stocking by the fire. Was, well, that's how the story goes. I don't want to really stick to those details. But that's where we get a tradition for Christmas. But more than anything, we want to understand about this Saint Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, that he was not just a humanitarian. He was following Christ, his Lord. As a matter of fact, in 303 AD, Diocletian became the Roman Emperor and instituted the great persecution, one of the worst persecutions in the history of the church. And he uh, underwent tortures for the name of Christ horrible tortures. But he would not deny the Lord who had filled his heart to overflowing so that he could give to so many other people. He would not deny Christ, the Son of Man, who came to begin a new humanity in our hearts. The true humanity. What we were truly meant to be. So let's read Mark ten forty-two through 45. And you'll notice these two forms of humanity in this passage. And Jesus called them... called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You notice the Gentile overlords, the first type of humanity. You notice the serving son of man, the true humanity. As we chart this course, I want you to understand that where we're going is we're going to talk about the son of man, Who came as dependent dust, the first point, to serve, to suffer, and to find a surprising splendor as the ultimate purpose of all sons of men like you and I. And to do this, we're going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to move back to Mark to fill uh, fill out what the Son of Man, what that term really means. So turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. That's where we're going to start. And we're going to start by talking about what is an ordinary son of man. What does that mean in the Old Testament? And then we're going to look at a rising expectation in the Old Testament for an extraordinary son of man. Finally, we're going to come back to Mark, and we're going to look at the coming of the extraordinary son of man and his service, his suffering, and his splendor as he returns in glory. So let's start, actually before we even talk about Genesis 2-7, I want to talk about uh, two verses from the Old Testament that really explain uh, what it means to be a son of man. The, the normal uses of, usage of the term son of man in the Old Testament. Numbers twenty three nineteen. It's the first one. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. This is a Hebrew parallelism, a synonymous parallelism. So, they're making man and son of man synonymous in these two sentences, okay? So, man means son of man, son of man means man. Son of man is an ordinary human being in the usage of the Old Testament. Psalms 8.4, a famous one. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Synonymous. Son of man means simply being human, an ordinary man. So now let's look at the creation of ordinary men in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Two things here. Man is formed from the dust of the ground. And then he's given this divine breath of life to animate that dust. Dust is a pretty humbling picture. If you sit dust on your shelf, it's not going to do much but gather more dust. It's not very useful. It's not very effective. It's feeble. It's fragile. Psalm 103, 14 through 16 says that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And his place knows it no more. Feeble, fragile, frail, powerless, dependent dust. That's our basic nature as human beings, as ordinary sons of men, dependent dust. Shakespeare's Hamlet has a fun little phrase I want to illustrate this with, a little poem here. It says, imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that the earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall to expel the winter's flaw. This is a picture of the great emperor Caesar, dying and dust returns to dust. He decomposes on the ground and a beggar can pick up that same ground and use that ground to stop a hole. Caesar's use, a hole stop. All of us, without God's purposes and divine plan and animation to our dust, we are nothing. We are feeble, frail, and powerless. Dependent dust. But there is this mention of the divine breath of life, a breath of life that wasn't given to any other animal or living creature that God had created. There is no more record of him breathing this special and intimate breath of life into anyone but dusty men. And what does that mean? It means that there is something special about us. And to see a little bit more about that Look a chapter back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What is special about man? We dependent pieces of dust are made in the very image of God. And we're given the authority to rule over all of creation. That's something incredibly special about we tiny pieces of dust. What a gift God has given us as he created us. What does the image of God mean? Well, think of it as all of God's infinite holy character being formed into a tiny finite piece of dust and that holy loving goodness of God that servant heartedness that sacrificial love the humility, the splendor of everything God is in the form of little tiny dusty men and that is God's plan for creation in in the Garden of Eden. That we would rule together, we would have dominion over this this globe, and that we would be uh, subservient co-creators with him, that he, yes, created out of nothing, but we finite people get to take what he, he created, and we get to tend the garden. We get to create. We get to organize. We get to use all of the little gifts that he has given us to exercise dominion over the earth as we depend On him, dependent dust with a beautiful purpose. We get to image God's holy character. Little pictures of God. But then something happens. In Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to read a whole lot from Genesis chapter 3. But I want to mention a couple of phrases in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, 4 through 7. First is Satan's temptation of the woman. He says... If you disobey God and eat of the forbidden fruit, you will be like God." Independent dependent dust became arrogant dust and sought to claim the throne of the loving and good God who had given everything to these dirty creatures. It became so dirty. We became arrogant. We ascended to take the throne away from God. We thought that we, little finite, dependent dust people, could rule better than God could. We could find happiness in ourselves, a greater joy than we could find in the God who is immense, eternal, and perfect. Why would we ever think that? We all do, though. We all do. We all seek our own independent Life away from God, independent of God, our creator. And when that fruit was eaten and man claimed independence and separation from God, suddenly the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. When Adam and Eve became the masters of their fate and the captains of their soul, Suddenly they realized they could not change a thing. They had no power. They were only what God had created them to be, and now they had become shameful. They had become sinful. They had become everything that they did not want to be. And so they tried to cover themselves to hide their shame. Brothers and sisters, fig leaves cannot hide the shame of hearts that turn away from everything good, and a great and loving God. We are all filled with shame, filled with sin, filled with that beastly, self-seeking humanity after we have fallen. Cain and Abel, as Gary mentioned earlier, were just a great confirmation of this. Cain was jealous of his brother. He wanted something his brother had. He was afraid that his brother might look better than he did came angry, and he killed him. And this is the heritage of all the nations of the earth from that point forward. We are all self-seeking. We are all seeking our own prideful existence, claiming to be like God, trying to be more like our own God, and ultimately, that, that's murder, that's selfishness, that's greed, that's lust, that's every evil thing. And that is the heritage of the nations. We have all become a cursed and ruined humanity. So ordinary sons of men were created with a great purpose. But we gave up that great purpose for something ruinous. So now let's look at a rising expectation of the coming of an extraordinary son of man. We've seen what ordinary sons of men are. What that that is defined as, now, what are we expecting? We're expecting an extraordinary son of man to come. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God gives a promise. He does not seek immediate vengeance. He seeks to serve from the beginning, and he gives them a promise. He tells Satan that God will put enmity between Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Satan's head would be bruised by this coming son of man. Also, the son of woman, as Wes preached a couple weeks ago. And you shall bruise his heel. It's a great promise. So we have an expectation. Then more promise was given to Abraham. In a ruined world, God calls a man out of that ruined world and gives him faith. Exactly what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve decided not to depend on God anymore, but to depend on self, and now Abraham was given faith. Dependence on God once again broke into God's created world. So now faith was coming back into the world, and there was a promise even that Abraham would have a son, a son of promise, and Isaac was not that son. He was a miraculous answer to that promise, but he was not the ultimate answer to the promise. Son of Man was still coming, Jesus Christ. Turn to Daniel 7, and we're going to see the ultimate and the expectation in the Old Testament of this Son of Man. In the first eight verses, you can just scan over those as I recap them. Basically, Daniel has a vision as he's exiled in this evil kingdom of Babylon. And there he sees beasts. And these beasts represent nations of men, beastly nations, selfish nations, destructive nations. They represented Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, lions, bears, leopards, and something horrible looking. And these beasts are a contrast to what we see in the expectation of a coming son of man, In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, we have beasts, self-seeking, beastly nations, who we all are, and then we have the Son of Man. Beast and man. Let's read Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We get a huge hint right here in Daniel 7.13. That this Son of Man is not an ordinary Son of Man. The, the fact that he's coming on the clouds of heaven is a hint to us. In the Old Testament when we see clouds, we often see uh, the divine presence in the midst of those clouds. Whether it's clouds at the top of Mount Sinai as God is giving his law to Moses or if it's clouds uh, leading the people of God through the wilderness, God's divine presence leading them forward. Clouds are a hint that God is there. It's an image that suggests God's presence. And so the Son of Man is something special. The Son of Man, referred to here, is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion. Just what we saw in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 1, he was given dominion, like the original sons of men were. But this time he would restore right dominion, Unlike the beastly kingdoms that exercise their dominion to pillage, to seek self, and to kill whatever got in their way, this Son of Man would come to set up righteousness and peace as an everlasting kingdom forever. And that brings us to the advent of the Son of Man. You can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10, but I'm going to talk about the coming of the Son as an infant on our way to get there. Christmas is finally here. The long-awaited Savior has finally come. Almighty God was born an infant, and he who held the nations in his hands was held in the arms of a young girl where man sought to exalt ourselves, dust sought to ascend to the throne. The God who sits on the throne chose to humble himself and make himself in the form of a dependent infant boy. This is a miracle. Luke 2.7 is one of the most miraculous scriptures. It says, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Mary, probably a 14-year-old girl, giving birth to God, made man, and wrapping him in swaddling clothes. The God who exists in and of himself, who has all power, dominion, and authority, allows himself to be carried, to be wrapped, to be kept warm, his cold skin comforted by Mary's warmth and the little pieces of cloth. I'm so glad we have so many tiny infants around Redeemer to remind us of how dependent Almighty God became in order to serve us. Wow. Babies need a lot. (laughs) It's not like God just Popped into existence in humanity and just hovered above the ground with all of his needs being met by some divine cloud, he actually allowed himself to be served by us. It's amazing. What humility. What a contrast to our own desire to lift ourselves up all the time and to make ourselves look like we're so great and powerful, as if we're so much more than we are. He was born in a stable, stables are where animals are kept. And as I learned from some folks that know stables recently, there's usually feces on the ground. There's usually animal slobber. It's a horrible place for a baby to be born. If Mary had read that, uh, that frightening book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, she probably would have had a tizzy at that time. But there were donkeys around. I mean, a donkey could have kicked the little manger, and suddenly the Son of Man was spilled on the ground, and the plan of all eternity had failed. No, Christ was dependent, but he had a reason to trust in a God who could see him through his infancy. The Father would oversee every detail as he oversees every detail of our lives. Just as Christ became dependent and put himself in the arms of Mary, so we can learn to become utterly helpless and dependent, to admit our utter helplessness and dependence on a God who we can trust. This is a wonderful service to us, to all of us who are arrogant and think that we can make our own way. Well, after he was born in that unstable environment, he grew up, and all the time, depending on his mother, his little head would grow weary. And he would rest it on that 14-year-old girl's shoulder whom he had planned to create before the foundation of the world. He chose to be born in weakness so the Father could protect and provide. And he learned, he was uh, teaching us to, to learn to glory in our dependency as children of dust. Just like the children he spoke of. He said to have faith like a child Look at these children. One of the best places that they can be is cuddled in their mother's arms. Infants cry until that special mom comes and picks them up and holds them. It's being demonstrated right now with a dad. It's a wonderful picture. We can be so comforted if we will rest in the God who holds the universe and reclaim the dependence that we once gave up. Have faith like children, depend like children on a very strong father. Vulnerability is beautiful when you have someone you can trust to hold you. Detractors, however, will say, Oh, you're talking about all this dependence stuff. Yeah, just like I've always thought. Christianity is just a crutch. You know, to answer that, Yes, Christianity is a crutch. The problem is, that the rest of humanity does not realize that their legs are broken. We all have to have a crutch. We are not made to stand on our own two legs by ourselves. We are made to depend on our beautiful Savior and God. So let's read Mark 10.45 yet again. Actually, I'm just going to read 10.45 this time. For even the Son of Man came not to be served... But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First of all, just in case you're you're confused, it says to be served. Yes, Mary did serve him in many ways. Yes, he depended on the Father in everything throughout his life. As you see the prayers, he's always praying that the Father would do this, that the Father would do that. He wasn't just depending on himself. He, He lived a life of dependence as a son of man. However... As he depended on God and God through others, he was showing us how to be true servants, not the type that lorded over like a slum lord, extorting his tenants and drawing every bit of lifeblood they have out of him to serve the slum lord. But this is a God who became dependent in order to serve us and serves us even to the point of suffering and death. He was served so he could serve. And we too need to realize that we must be served before we can serve. You see, the Son of Man washed feet. He forgave the brokenhearted. He rebuked the prideful, and that was a service. He calmed the nerves of anxious friends in a boat in a storm. He healed the sick. He released those captives to evil spirit And he caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. His ultimate service, however, was his service of suffering in our place to obtain forgiveness for us on the cross. See, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived the perfect life that we humans, ruined humans, should have lived if we wanted to find true joy. And he lived that life of dependence to show us how to find our true joy again and to bear the punishment that we deserve from God for abandoning him and thinking that we can arrogantly lead our own lives the way we want and somehow find happiness. The infinite God poured myriad hells upon this ordinary son of man who was the extraordinary son of God. Hells that we deserved. Hells that we have begun to suffer in just the torments of a sinful world. But he bore our sorrows. He carried us. He carried our griefs. And we can learn from this tortured, alone son of man carrying our sins We can learn from Him that we do not have to carry our sins. We are not strong enough to carry our sins. We so often claim so much guilt for what we've done or what we keep doing again and again. He's teaching us to hate our sin but to love Him and to trust Him that He will cleanse us. His service is an act of cleansing us from our sin so that we can find true joy. Sin is the opposite of joy. In our twisted humanity, we think sin is somehow going to make us happy, but it will not. It will empty out our souls because we are taking ourselves away from the true ground of all reality, the loving, humble God who has died for us. And so God's service to us is to send the Son of Man to live a perfect life and to do away with our sin. If we depend on him, depend on him. So what does this mean for us as servants? Servant leadership is what we're looking for. Christ leads us through his servanthood. And so we will always lead one another through servanthood. We will either lead them to Christ or we will lead them to a false savior because I think that I am actually the source of my own servanthood for some reason and my own arrogance. And that will lead them away from Christ. So how do we serve rightly? As dependent dust, expecting that we can give nothing except for what we've been given. My dust has nothing to give to you, but God has given me gifts to give to you. And as you look around the church, he made the church a community of servants, and he chose not to give any one of us everything we need to live together. You are not on your own, and you do not have everything you need. But as you look around the room, every single person in our membership has been given gifts that you need. And every single person in our membership has needs that you have been given gifts to fill. We are simply the arbitrators of God's gracious love to his people. He gives gifts to us, and we open them and give them away. It's Christmas. We get gifts, we give them away. And in the midst of getting gifts and giving them away, we get to participate in the almighty love of God for us, for others, and it fills our hearts with an unspeakable joy. We were created to live like the serving son of man. Marriage is a great testing ground for this, by the way. Marriage and family. When you have two sinful people coming together, you either find that the beasts will come out and the self-seeking will win, or if it's a perfect marriage, you'll find two humble, dependent people looking to God to meet every need, not ever claiming more authority or power or ability or goodness than they actually have in and of themselves, or depending on God for all of that. And they look to see how they can serve the other, And they don't need to look at their own needs because God is meeting their needs. And God is meeting their needs through their wife, their husband. And so they serve one another and all their needs are met. But that's that perfect picture in Eden. That's not where we live today. And so I want us to get a picture of this. How beautiful that picture is. To serve one another with God supplying our every need. It's a joyful picture. So Let's move toward that. Let's trust this Son of Man. Let's be dependent on Him. And as we feel the hairs on our neck begin to rise because we are angry at something that somebody spent or somebody did or somebody said, let's remember, I'm but dust and I am but dirty dust. And I can bear with you in love. And as God gives me the ability to understand that I I've had all of my sins placed on him and he bore my punishment. <laughs> how can I not forgive you? And how can I not love you and serve you? Sometimes service looks like just offering a listening, listening ear. It's not always something that looks just absolutely miraculous. But sometimes a listening ear is miraculous. A listening ear, a little bit of patience, talking a little bit, serving one another, becoming like the servant son of man sometimes looks like putting down the remote control and picking up the dishes. We are meant to serve, and we're meant to find our joy in serving. This is who we were truly meant to be as created sons of men. So now let's finally look at suffering and splendor. We've talked about being dependent dust. We've looked at Mark 10 and seen the servanthood and those two themes will carry through. But now, as we make our trek to the completion of suffering and splendor, let's look at Luke nine, twenty-two through 26. As I said earlier, Christ's greatest act of service to us is to suffer for us. It says in Luke 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. These two passages represent over 80 passages that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, And so many biblical theologians that I've read have categorized this servanthood, suffering, and splendor as the three themes. And I want to encourage you guys to look at more passages. But this one I chose to really highlight not only his suffering, but his example to us to follow him in suffering. Why? Why would we ever want to suffer? This sounds so counterintuitive. Why would I want to give up my selfish desires and follow him to the cross and suffer there daily? Why would I ever want that? Why would I want to serve people in suffering? Well, I'll tell you the story of a young couple deeply in love and all they wanted was to get married. They didn't have any money. They had very few prospects for jobs. But they got married and they lived in poverty and they knew that this was coming. But he loved her so much and she loved him so much that they were willing to go through poverty just to be together. Why would we suffer? Because there's something greater to suffer for, there's something more beautiful. If we look at the wound, we definitely don't want the wound. But if we look at the healer, the pain seems to fade because there's a greater joy in the healer than in the wound. So why do we suffer? Because suffering is just another path to see the truth of the greater glory of Jesus Christ and his condescension to allow us to walk with him and live with him and to find the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, as Philippians 2 says. We get to fellowship with him. We get to be with him. Also, as an illustration of suffering for a greater purpose, remember 9-11? More people, more young men, went to enlist in the military than there had been in a long time right after those towers fell. They saw themselves as individuals that were fighting for a greater purpose. It was a clearly marked good versus evil battle. And they wanted to serve the good. And so this, this humanity that we all have, that we were all created as, it suddenly came out in them. They realized that they were created to serve something better, and they went and they signed up to carry a pistol, to carry a pen at a desk, to, to drive a truck, whatever they could do to serve that greater purpose. And they came in droves. That's because that's who we're created as. We're created to serve a higher purpose. We're created to make art for a higher artist. We're created to wash feet for the one who washed our feet. We're created... To love others because we have been loved with an immeasurable love. And as we follow him, and we keep our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and his glory and his love, suffering becomes so much less. Suffering fades, and it just becomes a tool that God uses to show us more of him. The God who suffered for us and served us in suffering. So don't be afraid of it. Christmas can bring a lot of suffering can bring credit card bills after we've given in to the idol of thinking that lots of presents can make us happy, or that lots of presents can make our kids happy. It's an easy trap to fall in, as fallen dust. But God is faithful, and he will lift us out of that fallen dust. Christmas is a time where we come in contact with family that might be saying, haven't you been in school for about 14 years now? And isn't that after you graduated from high school? What are you doing with your life? Don't you have any stability? Aren't you going to have anything? He is our stability. And yes, we all make mistakes. We sin. That's what it really boils down to. But God covers our sins. And he gives us a stability so that all we do is we trust him, we depend on him, and we realize that we are going to mess up, but he is going to make it up. And we can trust following Christ in suffering for his splendor and glory. Jesus Christ suffered for the glory that was set before him, a glory that is higher than our dependent dust. And so we follow him in that path. We follow him in suffering for the glory that is set before us, the glory of the Son of Man and reigning with him as he comes in the clouds. Let's look at Matthew 24:29 through 31 in closing. This is a final Son of Man statement that we're going to look at in Scripture today. Speaking of the return of the Son of Man, the Son of Man came to serve, the Son of Man came to suffer, and to demonstrate the dependency of our human dust. But he is coming back in splendor. Immediately, verse 29 After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, he is coming back for us to end suffering forever. As we have suffered to learn what true joy is all about, as we have suffered and looked at the cross of Christ, at the character of our Lord who has saved us, at his love for us, that he would suffer in our place and for us, and he would carry our sorrows, that when we carry our sorrows, we will not be doing that alone. He is coming back and he will make the world right. That dominion that was spoken of in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, he's coming back to reassert it. And then we will have a vision of (laughs) something that Christmas all year round has never even come close to meaning in our hearts and minds. A place where people serve one another out of the love that they have received from our God who we depend on and love and absolute adoration. And our joy will increase from day to day as we look at him and as we serve him and as we co-create exercising a subordinate dominion under him the son of man serving us so we can serve one another and spread that service and love throughout the whole globe every need met every joy realized every thing that we were made to be be realized in all of its fullness as the true sons of men, following after the true and extraordinary son of man. God is coming in power. He has not left us. He has come in power in all the hearts who have chosen to depend on him in faith and to trust him to take away our sin. So today, if you have not trusted in him, look around after the end of the service. Ask if the people around you are members of Redeemer Church. If they are, they're equipped. They know how to tell you how great a God we serve, and what you can do to come to know Him better and to depend on Him more. If you have been depending on Him, and if you've uh, wondered, if maybe you're truly trusting, if you're truly there, put your faith in Him. Don't look at yourself. You're but dust. You have nothing but what He's given. So continue to lovingly and joyfully trust Him, and He will bring joy to the world. Wherever the curse was found, now there's only joy. This is the end for which we were created and the gracious gift that God has given us. Let's pray. Most holy God, you are extraordinary. The fact that you would stoop to serve, the fact that you would come in the form of an ordinary son of man, And that you would suffer and die for us, your holy, perfect character, completely innocent and pure, stooping to carry our sin. Thank you that you've not left us alone. Thank you that you've not left us in the ruin of our beastly humanity. But Lord, thank you that you have set an example and that you have given us the power by the cross and your resurrection with a new breath of life to live with eternal life already growing in our hearts. Thank you for your joy. Help us to follow you more, to depend on you more, this day and forever. The true meaning of Christmas. Thank you that you have come. And thank you that you are coming back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.